Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at the This Pulp Event Podcast features Pulp Fest special guest, John Arfstrom, a cover artist toward the end of Weird Tales' original run. Arfstrom talks with pulp art expert David Saunders. He was recorded on August 14th, 2015, at Pulp Fest 2015 in Columbus, Ohio. Pulp Fest committee member Mike Chomko introduces the panel. We want to welcome uh, one of the few living people who work for the Pulps, John Armstrong. He was an artist, largely self-trained. He also went to uh, the Minneapolis School of Art. Lifelong resident of Minnesota, right? Uh, way back when he was working in a factory, he started submitting uh, art to some of the magazines, and he uh, he had stuff published in uh, Weird Tales and Ray Palmer's Mystic Magazine and Other World Science Fiction, William Crawford's Spaceway. Uh, but in later years, back in uh, the 80s, I believe, he started painting covers for. Uh, Fadogan and Bremer, and Hafner Press, and, and most recently for PS Publishing. Yeah. So he's still uh, a quite active and fine artist. Uh, David Saunders uh, is, uh, is uh, uh, an acknowledged expert on pulp artists. As we all know, he's the son of pulp artist Norman Saunders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he'll be interviewing. Uh, John. It'll be about a 25 minute interview. I want to thank uh, his son and daughter, John's son and daughter, for getting them here for us, and also Greg uh, Ketter for uh, contacting me to, to add him to our programming. We were able to squeeze him in to tonight's programming. So, without further ado, here's John and David. <laughs> So uh, we don't have a lot of time, and I want everyone to be able to ask John all the uh, questions they could possibly imagine. Their rare opportunity to be able to speak to a uh, living yeah. <laughs> Weird Tales artist, because you know most of the artists at Weird Tales were dead when they did their work. <laughs> but um, so I'm going to flip through these pictures just so you can all see what's going on. There's no particular uh, um, sense to it. But these are chronological images of his work, just so that we you know, can understand what we're... So I'm going to read a quick thing. John Douglas Arston was born November 11, 1928, in Superior, Wisconsin. His father, Fred Oscar Arstrom, was born in 1881 in Sweden. His mother, Thera Westland, was born in 1882 in Sweden. His parents married in 1927 in Wisconsin, and um, they had um, two children. John and his younger sister, June. And um, there were also um, five children that were um, half-brothers and half-sisters um, from Thera's first marriage. And um, the dad was a, um, a painter and a uh, jack-of-all-trades. And um, by, I think when he was eight years old, um, uh, the parents separated, and um, 
they, they moved to Minneapolis, and the mom, um, as a courageous, probably worthy of a biography type person, um, raised you know all these kids, and uh, was a um, successful uh, chef in um, Minneapolis, and um, her two oldest um, daughters worked as um, in the garment factories. You know, there's a lot of uh, garment factories in Wisconsin, a lot of cold winters, a lot of garments were needed. And um, while John and June went to uh, high school, uh, public schools, and during the Second World War, of course, he was only 13 years old, so he didn't have any military service. But uh, during the summers, he spent some time with one of his older brothers, um, who's the artist Ralph Bud Moline, who uh, worked in for a art agency in Chicago, which was like the second biggest city in America for advertising. And uh, maybe, you know, it was a, a good early exposure for someone. So by the time he graduated um, high school, um, he uh, knew he wanted to be an artist and went to the Minneapolis um, School of Art, studied with um, Bernie Quick, and um, married his girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. And uh, eventually had uh, four kids, and um, uh, out, you know, out of uh, complete sheer uh, creative genius, uh, began sending his stuff to Weird Tales, saying you should probably uh, consider using these things. And he was trying to sell them on the ideas, and they um, said, well, these are good enough for covers. <laughs> And he was trying to convince them to do uh, interiors. And, and we've all heard that before, I think, with Weird Tales, or how to cut corners and uh, get covers out of guys that were sending in a uh, $6 interior. But um, he uh, then began to do uh, all types of uh, um, commercial illustration and fanzine illustration. And um, pretty soon went to, uh, enrolled to the uh, famous artist school in Westport, Connecticut, and got uh, even further training in the field of commercial art. And in 1954, he uh, got a job with the famous Brown and Bigelow, which did um, you know, the, uh, Earl Moran and Zoe Mozart, and had done so many of the great, and Rockwell, all had calendars with, um, and also I think uh, CW, what's his name, with all the, the poker playing dogs and uh, but it was a huge it's a huge company and um, and he worked with them for 40 years of uh, over 40 years for st stable uh, employment and uh, in he continued to be connected with fanzines and fantasy illustration and um, you know uh, in recent years and stuff has been um, uh, done these remarkable books that have gotten, um, you know, uh, special awards and stuff like that. Uh, so, and as you can see from his uh, display, if you go down to the dealer's room, um, I'd say by far the most incredible thing is all the work that he does um, for himself, just as an artist, which are all incredibly beautiful fantasy-based illustrations for his own imaginary stories, I suppose. But they're, uh, unlike other people, you might say something was uh, unpublished and therefore inferior. These are actually way superior because <laughs> he's making them for himself 
like a la William Blake or something, you know, fantasizing a beautiful uh, imaginary world and then just creating it. So here he is. Got any questions and stuff? <laughs> so, um, you know, when you were working for uh, uh, famous artists, I mean, working, uh, getting instructions from famous artists, um, uh, there was, uh, there must have been a, a lot of really cool artists um, that were acting as instructors and stuff for you. Oh yes, they were. I want to mention something before we go any further. Uh, this is uh, back in the 60s or 70s, I was uh, interviewed on TV for a half hour and uh, I had paintings along, my serialistic and fantasy paintings. And I also had the same medical problem I got now. I have a runny nose that I constantly haul my hanky out <laughs> I had told the, asked the photographer if you can cut out to something else yeah. when I'm wiping my nose. And uh, also, I had given the uh, interviewee, or the interviewer, a list of questions that I didn't think she should bother asking me. <laughs> uh, it was nothing, uh, I didn't think it would hurt to have a limit. Uh, anyway, uh, during the whole interview, she asked, all those questions and more that I wasn't interested in people hearing. The photographer I didn't know uh, until I saw the uh, a video when it was all done. And uh, close-ups of the nose the whole time through. Yeah, well, he did not eliminate any of that. And then the. Uh, the the pictures he had of my artwork, I could not believe it. Oh, uh, I couldn't recognize most of the paintings, actually. It'd be and yet your career, your career has, has gone on since then, despite that slander. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, before that time, I thought any publicity that you get is good publicity. <laughs> But uh, I've changed my mind, and I, I hope I can be a little more uh, cautious now. What was the first, what, what got you interested in pulp magazines? I think every kid back in the 30s was interested in pulp magazines. Did you ever interact with them, or? No. Well, <laughs> if, if they had a magazine I wanted, and then. I think most of us started out with the Western stories. And then you had, uh, well, you had magazines for any subject. Yeah. I went through Westerns and uh, Blue Book and... Uh, uh, Did you like some of the illustrators in Blue Book? Blue Book, I thought, was a classy magazine. It, uh, I, don't, I don't think it ever had ragged edges. Mm -hmm. It printed its drawings inside in one or two colors, you know, which others just did one. Right. They would credit the artists, unlike a lot of them, they would... Yeah. Yeah, the pulp magazines, if you don't know, they were the most ragged-edged uh, book. They didn't trim the... Uh, Street and Smith was uh, one of the leading publishers, and they came out with uh, cut edges. 
before anybody else, which meant that uh, I got uh, the shadow, which was one of my favorites for a long time, had trimmed edges. <laughs> and uh, well, by the trimmed trimmed the edge measure, you also weird tails had trimmed trimmed edges. Yeah, I yeah I don't remember if they had ragged edges. At I think all. they had trimmed edges. You guys all know. Yeah. So you didn't like Doc Savage, huh? Well, I liked Doc Savage, but I, I went through it like I did the Avenger. You know, it was enough. I went on to other things. I heard uh, I heard uh, 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 urban legend. I heard an urban legend that you uh, were a fan of Doc Savage. No, I got a I got a strange letter here in uh, last fall from somebody called October Rising. This is the guy's name. He had sent me a letter and he had enclosed a uh, clipping, uh, a copy of a clipping of a letter that I had wrote to uh, Doc Savage magazine back in 1942. <laughs> uh, so that's your first appearance in a pulp then, right? I never thought of it that way, yes. <laughs> you gotta get someone to do your resume, man. Uh, anyway, that was a strange letter and I wrote him back about my, a brief resume of how I really hadn't read that magazine for years. I wasn't that big a fan. Uh, what did it feel like to get uh, a, a Weird Tales in the mail that had your own illustration in it? the first time? Well, when you're a little, like young like I was, I was a teenage, late teens when I uh, started to do these <coughs> things for weird tales. Uh, you know, you're making it, man. <laughs> you're getting your stuff published and paid for. <laughs> yeah, isn't that? But just to see it in print, with, and they gave you your credit too, because your name, you signed your work. And yes, except in one issue. I wish I could remember the issue, but uh, my uh, this one issue of uh, Weird Tales that I had illustrated was credited to uh, uh, Virgil Finley, which. First I thought, boy, that's great to be compared to him. <laughs> then I thought it's kind of an insult, too. Just pay attention to what they're doing at the, the office. Well, real cognoscenti could tell because although it's printed illustration by Virgil Finley, your signature is still visible. Mine, it was a scratch board drawing, and if you look close, I got my name scratched there. <laughs> so. So when you, uh, when you saw a color cover, what'd you think? Well, I, uh, I'm trying to think of that's first one like, I, I saw. I think that's the first one up there. Can you see it? Yeah, this was Doom. a sample that I sent to them. I hadn't intended to them to use it as a cover because it was an oil painting just to show them I could paint. It wasn't the size in the right dimension for the magazine. They kept it, and they, that's why it's got a green uh, oh, yeah. section running across the top. Did they, did they crop it differently, or is there more that's missing? No, I mean, the whole picture is there as far <laughs> wow. as I remember. Wow. That's great. Did you keep it? 
Now, one thing about back then when you uh, you sent artwork in to be published, uh, you never saw it again. The, uh, so you were under the impression you were probably the greatest artist in the history of all time, because you're well, 19 that, years old and you... Well, that was, yeah, that's the first few years, you know, until <laughs> Well, what, what it, what it, in 1954, so you were getting these in 50, 52, 53, and in 54 you were already um, a staff artist at Brown and Bigelow, and you're... No, uh, well, yes, I was, yes, 54. I had, uh, Weird Tales went out of business like uh, nothing at all. I had been getting work regularly from them and I was paid regularly. They would send me the manuscript and tell me the size. They left the rest of it up to me, so I, I really felt free to do what I wanted. Wow. Well, you must have written to them because you were following what they were doing. So were there artists and illustrators that you really liked and writers that you liked at Weird Tales that made you think that, that you would be a good match? Uh, yeah, Virgil Finley was... Uh, well, he was the top artist in the The big field. inspiration, yeah. Yeah. Uh, other, more of a favorite of mine was uh, Ed Cartier, who worked for uh, Street and Smith. Back, uh, started seeing his stuff for uh, Shadow Magazine. Did you ever get to meet him? No. Oh. Did you get to meet Earl Mayen? No. Huh. I, in fact, uh, I was kind of an isolated person. I, mm -hmm. didn't, I, I never met Mick Hillary's. Our business was strictly <laughs> through the mail wow. and only concerned the job. And uh, when that magazine stopped, uh, it just disappeared from the stand and I had no word of it going out of business. And I, I learned later that it had run a little longer because uh, Stephen Jones in uh, England sent me a copy, mm -hmm. a later copy that had uh, two of my interior drawings, <laughs> which I, I did not remember wow. what my signature was there. You know, when you see an artist sees his work over a long period of time, or hasn't seen it, you can judge how good it is. I thought it was pretty damn good. That's great. It's <laughs> great. So maybe you were right when you were a kid. You really were pretty damn good then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Brown and Bigelow thing, uh, you were, uh, they would have like, uh, a big contract to do a lot of rock wells or something, and then there was water uh, damage or something, and then they would say, well, uh, we still got to go to work, and so who would they get to make, uh, to uh, repaint all the rock wells and stuff? No, that's a little different story. <laughs> Brown and Bigelow was, uh, at, the, at the time, was the largest calendar company in the world. This was 1950. This was my first full-time day job. I worked there off and on through the years, totaling up to about 40 years, and I also freelanced. Um, 
You also freelance with them, or you freelance in other places, you mean? Well, yeah, but Brown and Bigelow had uh, put out a variety of calendars, or not just calendars, but any kind of advertising material. I was, uh, besides doing watercolors and paintings, I was doing uh, kids' coloring books for them. Hmm. Oh, yeah and uh, safety calendars. Uh, well, this was a big variety of things. And uh, they also produced playing cards and stuff too, right? They were the, I think they were the second largest after Congress mm -hmm. producing cards. So, but you were a 40 hour a week kind of guy working or? Yeah. But then they would also sell them freelance stuff or not? Yeah. I, you, most artists have to work a little more than 40 hours. Yeah. But I mean, could you bring them projects and, as, a, as an independent and get a, like a cash payment for stuff? Or, or you never did freelance for that Brown and Bigelow? No, well, I did. There were jobs I did that uh, they paid extra for. But uh, when I speak about freelance, it's usually with uh, outside uh, mm -hmm. people. Did you ever get an agent? No. Yeah. A lot of the people at Weird Tales uh, were were um, correspondent, corresponding with the publishing house. They weren't sitting in their lap and stuff like. They used a lot of outsiders that weren't in the major cities and stuff. Yeah. I made a trip to Chicago once in the mid '50s to. Uh, See if I could get an art job there, but uh, I had been there as a kid, staying with my brother, who was a commercial artist in Chicago, and those were fun summers. But mm. riding the L train to his apartment up in North Chicago, I thought I do not want to bring my family. Oh no, to yeah. Chicago. But the uh, agencies were there were a lot of opportunities and stuff. Yeah, that's a lot of good artists too were out there though. Oh, yeah. So it was very competitive. But the idea of living there didn't mm -hmm. strike me as... Well, but the, I would think 42 years with Brown and Bigelow painting Norman Rockwell paintings would give, well, you, chops, uh, would give you some chops after a while. And you'd have to be grateful for that because uh, you definitely come out a better artist at the end of that. The painting I did on Rockwell's <clears throat> What's the true story about that urban legend? Yeah, this is uh, uh, a lot of Norman Rockwell's early post paintings were in the public domain. And uh, so all you needed was a, just a reproduction of a, his work on a cover. And we had a lot of them right off the cover with the label still on there of the name of the person that was being delivered to. And scratches. Well, one of the jobs I did for them uh, wasn't often, but it was a job I didn't care much for was to paint the whole picture over again on heavy photographic paper that uh, uh, they would uh, print from it. The, yeah. the company photographer would uh, print the, the the 
the cover on heavy stock and I would come back with acrylic paint and, well, I... Make just, a decorative border. Just about the whole painting was uh, redone. Huh. Wow. Were these uh, boring? Like, when I retired, <laughs> one of the secretaries asked me, would I still do that? And I told her, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> they see, if they hadn't paid you, then you would have kept doing it, you know. But, Dad, they, I have a question. Norman Rockwell in his later years. Oh, she's, I, I think you're, what you're talking about. Norman Rockwell started uh, doing the Boy Scout calendar for Brown and Bigelow about 1920, sometime in the early 20s. And every year did it up until uh, about 1978 or 79, he, um, his paintings were falling down in quality so bad that there was an artist at B&B that was touching it up. Finally, a painting came in that uh, he said that, they, well, he was, uh, the art director was familiar with his family and called his wife and said, we just cannot use Rockwell anymore. And I asked my boss, I said, you know, we're talking about why would he keep working like this? Because I said, well, you just, you're an artist, you get, in my case, you just keep doing it whether you're good or not. <laughs> but he said no, and in Rockwell's case, he was just, he was that greedy. No. <laughs> Five minutes? No. Uh, ten. <laughs> I can't hear you, damn it. Time's up. That's easy enough. Uh, so. Is there any assertive people who want to make this drag on by saying they have questions and stuff? Because time is up. But yes, sir. I've got a question. When you were doing artwork for Weird Tales, would they send you a story and then say, just create something that, that you feel inspired by, whatever you want? Or would they tell you, would they send you a story and tell you specifically to make, illustrate it? How much creative latitude did you have? Oh, I had, I had, no, they never told me anything to do. <laughs> they gave me the size. They gave me the size, and I had a manuscript, so the, I, had the, I read the story. Wow. Yeah, it was very, uh, wow. uh, it was a very wow. good deal. That's great. Speaking of good deals, what'd they give you, 10 bucks? <laughs> you know, I don't remember, but I think they're, they varied in size. I think $25 maybe for a page or a part of the page, whatever, I don't remember. It wasn't a lot, I wasn't about to. If you sold about 20 of those, you could buy one copy of Weird Tales today. <laughs> what? If you sold like 20 drawings, you might be able to buy a Weird Tales. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get some applause for this guy. He put his entire life in it. <laughs> You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.